Hello, and welcome to PDA, Neurodivergence, and the Perpetually Determined Advocate. I am your Perpetually Determined Advocate, Cassandra. This is a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to raising awareness and acceptance of PDA, or Pathological Demand Avoidance, which is a lesser-known part of the autism spectrum. My hope for this podcast is to provide a place of learning and growth, as well as a platform for PDAers, professionals, parents, family members, and others to speak out on this condition, as well as providing resources for those who want to learn more. If you or someone you know would like to come on and use this platform to tell their story, please contact me at perpetuallydeterminedadvocate at gmail.com. Now, let's launch into this episode's topic. Today's topic I've mentioned before, I believe, uh, but after reading a couple of articles recently, it made me want to talk about the gender disparity in diagnosing ASD and other forms of neurodivergence. Um, a previous episode I did with one of my um, guests kind of talked about her experience and in, in being diagnosed later in life and how that was, in her case, it was ADHD and how it was missed when she was younger. Um, I mean, the science and statistics show that neurodivergent conditions are more likely to be diagnosed in males than females. And that's due to a, you know, a variety of factors. However, something that we are also seeing is that in recent years, more and more women are getting themselves evaluated and being diagnosed even later in life. One of the more recent statistics I saw said that um, last year, over 150,000 men, women, rather, took an online questionnaire that was, you know, approved by healthcare professionals. One of those, you know, take our questionnaire, you know, and um, use the results to see whether or not you need to talk to your um, primary care doctor about, you know, getting evaluated or getting assessed. And in this case, it was for autism. And that's, in 2021, there were roughly uh, a little over 150,000 women who did this, whereas in 2020, it was just shy of 50,000. So we've seen over 100,000 more women in the past year who are going in to be assessed for autism. And as we are, I think, becoming more informed about the varying nuance of neurodivergence, how it can manifest differently in people. Um, and I mean, obviously, from person to person, we see a difference in the way that it presents, but then also sometimes in the way it presents from uh, male to female also. And so we're starting to see these late diagnoses for people who, you know, have these things missed earlier in their lives because it was either dismissed or, um, in some cases they were wrongly diagnosed with something else. Look, I can give you, I can give you a good example. Okay. I know of a family that has two neurodivergent children. Okay. The youngest is a boy. He was diagnosed with ASD at, um, a younger age, uh, on the younger end of the, the spectrum, like 
six or seven, and the older child, who was is female, was not diagnosed with um, complex ADHD until closer to 16. And it was like, the mom will tell you that looking back, she can see now that yes, there were signs of um, executive dysfunction and emotional dysregulation and hyperfixations, some things that are, you know, sort of common between um, ASD and ADHD, right? There are, there are some commonalities between the two, which is one of the reasons why it took, for in my case, one of the reasons it took Declan so long to be diagnosed and assessed because they were like, no, it's just ADHD. I'm like, no, it's not. But anyway, <laughs> back to the story. Um, the thing was, there were other people in the family that had some of those elements. Like there were there was, you know, there were a couple members of the family who were also like very emotionally sensitive people. And so whereas the child was seen as being emotionally sensitive, that wasn't, that wasn't out of character because there were other people who were like that. Um, whereas the child would have these, um, what would now be called, um, hyperfixations, but at the time were seen as just like intense interests in cer certain things. The dad was the same way, right? The dad would have an e extreme interest in something for a while and then it would go, you know, it would fade back and be replaced by something else. So it wasn't seen as out of character or as unusual for this female child to do that. Now, the dad is actually, was actually diagnosed um, with ADHD as well. But, um, you know, these things weren't noted. But whenever the younger child started exhibiting some rather, um, I don't want to say alarming, but whenever the younger child started having some, um, you know, red flag types of behaviors, then the family, you know, was going through doing the whole diagnostic process, doing the assessments and the mom's looking at these questions. And, and she's like, I mean, this is some of the same stuff in the older sibling. We didn't ever think anything about that. It was these things that concerned us. And they were like, well, those are also signs of certain types of, you know, neurodivergence. And so after the younger one was diagnosed, the older child then was brought in and put through an assessment and was diagnosed. Um, they have different types of neurodivergence, but they both have those things. But it was because of a variety of factors, not necessarily gender norms and the idea that the daughter was being dismissed because, you know, of any sort of like sexist perspectives because that's that's not the case it was just the way things presented differently in a female versus a male didn't really get the same it didn't set off the same types of red flags right um now there's also that kind of brings up, like similar instances with some of the women who are getting diagnosed later in life, right? They're, you know, they're going through assessments and their children are being assessed for autism in some of these other cases in the article that I read. And so the women are seeing in these assessments and these questionnaires that they fill out as part of the assessments for their children, 
elements of themselves, right? They're seeing parts of themselves reflected in these questions, you know, as part of the, their child's diagnostic procedure. And it's like, wait, is that, I do that too. Is that not, I, I never really considered that as being a sign of something being off. And so you have women who are going through and, and figuring out that they have some of these presentations and like the gender gap itself is not always due to like societal gender norms regarding the behavior of children and regarding, you know, the societal expectations of gender and things like that. Um, sometimes it is, sometimes it does come from that sort of old line idea about, you know, if girls exhibit certain behaviors, then it's just, you know, finicky or whatever. Um, whereas if boys do it, it's seen as a bit unusual, right? It's not always that, you know, cause there was a stretch of time where conditions like autism and ADHD were really seen wrongly, but they were considered for a long time among the medical community as male disorders. So no one thought to look for these things in females because it wasn't thought that these things could in fact manifest in females. But the other part is too, neurodivergence manifests differently from person to person based on also their ability to mask or, you know, which of the signposts for different types of neurodivergence that that person presents. Because we know that it's more of a spectrum and not necessarily a, a straight line spectrum, right? We've talked about that before, more of a sort of nebulous sphere type of thing where you can be anywhere inside of there and then you could also just kind of be floating around, because for some people, they have, um, they can handle certain stimuli some days and other days they can't, right? It's all on that level of anxiety. Where are you at? How much more can you handle? Are you at burnout stage, right? So all of these things are, it's so complex and that's part of the reason um, outside of the idea of just specifically gendered behavior that have caused these disparities in diagnosis, right? Now, in some cases, you know, you'll have, it'll be a completely missed diagnosis. And in other cases, it is a misdiagnosis, right? So you'll get a, you know, be diagnosed for something else entirely. Um, things like anxiety and depression, which aren't really the root cause. That's not the problem. Those are the manifestations of an unsolved problem or an undiagnosed condition. Um, and I'll explain a little bit more of that in a moment. But like, for example, if young girls are prone to emotional meltdowns, they, and this is something that I've seen in a lot of the stories that I've read, like people's first person accounts, they were, you know, sort of seen as dubbed dramatic or overly sensitive and if a young boy is behaving in the same way, well, because at that point, that seems to be outside of societal norms, then it's seen as a red flag, right? If a girl is particular about the order of her belongings or her toys, she's seen as being tidy or domestic. Whereas if a boy does it, it's viewed more skeptically. 
Now, on the flip side of that, right, if a boy is very direct and straightforward in his way of speaking, um, that can sometimes be seen as kind of going against the grain of you know, polite expectations, he can just be viewed as being, um, you know, gruff or assertive. Whereas if a girl does it, then it'll send up red flags there, right? It will be seen more skeptically. Like, why is she being so dominant, right? That's, that's considered outside of it. So where in some cases, gender norms work against it, in some cases, gender norms can actually bring about, well, that's an odd behavior for a girl, um, so it's, it's a very problematic situation, right? Um, so what then is the point of getting a diagnosis later in life, right? Why does it matter? What purpose does it serve? And it's actually something that's really important. Um, even though being an adult who's out, you know, working in a career or even as a a stay-at-home parent, whatever it is, having that diagnosis is an answer, right? I mean, when you react in specifically quote-unquote abnormal ways, right, to certain environmental stimuli, it can be unnerving. You know, again, in the in the things that I've read from different people, you will hear them say the same things, right? A lot of them say, you know, I always thought, why am I acting this way? What's wrong with me? Am I broken? These are the kinds of questions that a lot of people who've struggled from living without a diagnosis have, you know, these are the things that they've thought. And whenever you don't have that light in the darkness that a diagnosis provides, it leaves you to wander down an even darker path, right? I mean, I, we've talked about this before. A diagnosis doesn't fix anything, but it does let you know what you're facing. And undiagnosed uh, conditions lead to, I mean, the, the research has been done. It leads to higher levels of anxiety, depression, and eating disorders, right? A development of... In some case, in severe cases, it can lead to like borderline personality disorders. That has, you know, been seen in some of the research as well. People, when they can't understand themselves or their reactions, they live in this constant state of uncertainty or aggravation. And, you know, they're hoping to be able to find the root of the issue that's causing these behaviors. But it's problematic when you don't have that answer when you don't know why and you know getting that diagnosis it doesn't stop the meltdowns it doesn't magically solve any of the struggles that come along with you know being neurodivergent the struggles of operating within a neurotypical world that is right so it doesn't change any of that but it gives you that torch it gives you the light you're able to see okay this is what i'm up against So you're now able to understand it's not that I'm, you know, there's something wrong with me. It's that I'm not wired for this. I'm not, you know, my brain doesn't process this situation. So I need to find another way to handle this. I just need to adjust my perspective. And when you do that, it's a massive relief because now you know 
how to handle, how to move forward, how to avoid these situations from happening, right? It gives you the knowledge of what tools you need in order to manage your life based on, okay, I'm just, I, I, you know, it's just a difference in wiring. It's a difference in how I see things, how I view things, how I approach things. And you understand that this isn't a flaw in you. Like these things are happening. They're out of your control and they're, that's just the natural response to the way your brain operates. And so it's a societal problem, not a you problem, right? And it helps to stop that shame. It helps to alleviate some of that anxiety. And, you know, it lets you know, all right, you know what? I can stop subjecting myself to this and expecting a different, a different outcome because I may never get a different outcome. This may always be something that's going to bother me. So I need to find a different way to go about this. You know, ASD and ADHD are very nebulous and they operate on this spectrum. So each person experiences it differently and, you know, one person in themselves can have a different response from one day to the next and understanding why, right? That is a huge weight off your shoulders. The important thing is you listen to your body, right? When your body is saying, I can't listen because a diagnosis is more likely to help a person avoid trying to push through that I can't. Because if you try to push through the I can't, when you literally, like your brain is not wired to do that, that can force you into a meltdown, that can send you into burnout. And those are, you know, some very serious places to be. And knowing that you don't need to push through that, knowing that you are, you need to find a way around it instead of through it can really help you to understand how to approach a lot of obstacles in life, a lot of, you know, just everyday situations in life, right? So we have this disparity. We have this lack of diagnosis in um, females over you know, rather than males, right? That's, I think the statistics are like one in four, um, for every one girl that's diagnosed with some form of autism, there's like four boys that are being diagnosed. So what, what can be done to help remedy the situation, right? The short answer is education and awareness, right? What we do, um, changes need to be made in the kinds of things that people recognize as, you know, potential presentations of neurodivergence, right? Um, assessment tools that are used are rather male-centric, according to a lot of the, the professionals out there in the field. Um, they kind of need to be reevaluated. Gender norms need to be disregarded. You know, certain behaviors need to be seen as, you know, potentially problematic, no matter, you know, or not problematic, but, you know, as a potential sign of something underlying something that needs to be investigated, regardless of whether it is coming from a girl or a boy. Like, it was the Autistic Girls Network, and I'll link their, their stuff. It's a, a charity organization that's 
working on this very issue um, that says, you know, boys are four times more likely to be diagnosed than girls because of the way that everything is set up right now. And it's not so much out of a from a sexist viewpoint, but it's just everything that was done for the longest time was done based on the fact that it was considered to be a male disorder. And so that's something that they're going to continue forward with. They've adjusted in some ways, but there are still plenty of places where there's room for improvements, right? And there's always going to be a desperate need for more awareness for people to understand what constitutes um, presentations of neurodivergence. You know, people need to know there, you know, I've told the story about when my kiddo was little and I would say if it wasn't for the fact that he'll, you know, hug you and look you in the eyes, I would think that he was autistic. And that was my lack of awareness. That was my lack of education um, because my son is autistic and always has been. And because I thought you had to have certain boxes ticked, I didn't ever think to have him assessed for autism. And so too often we have these signs of presentation in girls that are, you know, sort of dismissed, right? Oh, well, yeah, sh you know, this, this child has these quirky traits, but they're just quirky, right? That's, that's a word that often gets associated with that. And it's those different special interests that are a signpost, like those special interests that are unique to ASD, to neurodivergence, like these hyperfixations. those are there, but it's like, oh, well, they just have a quirky interests, right? They just have quirky behavior. Um, that's, that's part of the problem. And I think as parents to differently wired children, the process for assessment is so difficult, right? Um, as their parent, you are with them far more than any practitioner. And you know when something is more than just a tantrum or a quirk, right? You know this. They're... Um, fighting to get that assessment is daunting and it's a frustrating process. But I mean, you know, trust me, I've been there. And for me, my child was male. So I didn't have those other obstacles that happened to, you know, people trying to get an assessment for a, a female child. So for those seeking assessment, I, I can't imagine it being worse because it was already pretty um, ridiculous for us. And I mean, my heart goes out to you. And even though a lack of diagnosis will mean things like you can't get accommodations at school, it doesn't stop you from adapting your parenting approach or creating a safe and acknowledging environment for your child at home. However, listener beware, when a neurodivergent kiddo knows that they are in a safe, non-confrontational, loving environment, that can also uh, be a double-edged sword. Yes, that means your child feels accepted, seen, heard, loved, and those are wonderful things. But it also means that they know they can drop their mask at the door. So when your child comes home from school, it's very likely that you can experience some uh, tumultuous situations. Your child can be rather short-fused, um, 
kind of erratic. They could go through some pretty extreme highs and lows. They can be just completely worn out and want to crash. All of these things, right? I love that my kids feel safe and accepted at home. But I also know that that can bring with it the potential for some pretty extreme situations, especially when it comes to a child with PDA, right? Because they are prone to some really excessive highs and lows. And I'm not sure that I'm, <laughs> I really presented a helpful solution here. Um, I think when it comes to parents advocating for our children, it can seem like an insurmountable task at times, right? You explain and explain until you're blue in the face what your child needs, only to then have to repeat yourself, right? This doesn't end after the diagnosis stage. So for those who are seeking that diagnosis and hoping that that will help your child be seen in society, I am sorry to tell you that we still have a long way to go to truly create a society in the world that is as supportive to differently wired children and people as it is to typically wired, right? The good news is that there are those of us here to support you. Find communities of other parents to lean on, look to for support and advice. Um, online, there are, you know, on social media platforms, there are websites, and many of those communities can also help lead you to physicians and providers that are more informed about the nuance of neurodivergence and more willing to consider the potential need for assessment. Or it could be those who have better practices for working with ASD, ADHD, or PDA kiddos. I mean, if all else fails, research and bring in copies of the medical journal articles, the research of professionals in these fields that backs up what you are saying. Because then there are other people who are you know, trained in these fields saying the same things as you, acknowledging that the, what you're seeing is in fact something that needs to be explored. What it comes down to is, honestly, you have to be your child's perpetually determined advocate. As always, you can email me with any questions, comments, constructive criticism, or concerns at perpetuallydeterminedadvocate at gmail.com. You can also find the podcast on social media. Just search PDA Neurodivergence and the Perpetually Determined Advocate on Facebook or Instagram. And until next time, remember, in a world where you can be anything, be kind.